Got a lot of things to do in this world. Got a lot of things to do in this world. Got a lot of things to do in this world. Got a lot of things to do in this world. I lost myself now. Got a lot of things to do in this world. I lost myself. When you're chugging through life, sometimes you just want to stop. So stop. Even if it's not a good time, there's never a good time. Let's do it anyway. Stop all the chugging in your world and start sipping with the people in it. Lipton. Stop chugging. Start sipping. Be ready for whatever life throws your way. Dial Skin Smart Formula balances moisturizing conditioners and gentle cleansers, leaving a fresh scent and clean, soft skin. Dial. Count on clean. Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. Here we are. First week of a new year, 2022. First week of the rest of our lives. As those of you who've been listening know, I've veered this podcast toward healthcare during the time of COVID. I've seen my father pass away, learned a great deal. Now, is the time to begin building off what I've learned. I believe I can reshape healthcare. I believe we can all reshape healthcare. When I say that, I don't mean it in a gigantic political sense. There are five lines on page 391 of President Obama's memoir, The Promised Land, that basically show why it's no longer wise to sit around hoping for leaders in charge to make a massive transformation. When addressing the difficulties in making huge changes in healthcare at the beginning of his presidency, he reflected. The bad news was that the more everyone dug into the details of reform, the more differences in substance and strategy emerged, not just between Democrats and Republicans, but between House and Senate Democrats, between us and Congressional Democrats, and even between members of my own team. Now back to me. The bottom line is this. There's just not going to be agreement from the people we've elected to massively change healthcare, especially in these divided times. It's an impossible overhaul politically because healthcare is co-designed to take care of people's health and to make money. There are a lot of institutions and people who do well by the current system and don't want it to change in ways that diminish their power and influence. So they wield their power by funding politicians who keep the system operating the way it is. Obama did open health care insurance up to those with pre-existing conditions. That was a major achievement that has benefited a lot of people. And we are blessed to have a system that can give full and healthy lives to babies born so early and so small they can fit in the palm of your hand. Yet, just about anyone you talk to in and about health care will now tell you that our system is broken. Every day of the year, on average, a doctor in America was committing suicide, and that was before COVID. There can be no denying that COVID is pushing the system to its limits. One night, while my father was in a rehab center after breaking his pelvis, his roommate got out of bed, fell, couldn't get up. My father couldn't get out of bed to help him, 
So the two men yelled for help for about an hour and a half. Nobody came. There weren't enough nurses on duty in the facility. Now, I don't blame any nurse who left their jobs to protect their own life or the lives of their children during COVID. I get it. Point is, we got a problem. As you'll hear in detail on Big Questions later this year, America is now operating one million nurses short. And if things continue in their current state, projections are that we'll be 1.5 million nurses short by 2030. Anybody who's ever been in a hospital will tell you how valuable a good nurse is. Nurses are the backbone of the entire system. Well, you say, let's fix the problem. Let's incentivize those who want to go into nursing and bulk up the ranks. Well, here's something I bet you didn't know. The people teaching nurses at our nursing schools, for the most part, have silver hair. Average age in their 60s, and there are not enough of these teachers. Because of this shortage, tens of thousands, maybe 100,000 young people who want to become nurses couldn't get into nursing schools because there weren't enough teachers to teach them. Can Cal fix this? Well, if I was in charge, I'd couple private donations and government funding to fortify our nursing schools and offer free tuition to qualified students who'd pledge time to put into areas of the country that need it. But I ain't in charge. So all I can do at this point is tell you about the problem. I can tell you about another problem that's going to land just as we get out of COVID. Yep, I can tell you about the silver tsunami, a phrase used to describe the overall aging of America. I can tell you that over the next decade, America will turn into an older country as opposed to a younger one for the first time in its history, and that more than 100,000 silver-haired doctors approaching retirement age will leave the profession over the next few years. I can ask, during a period in which the country is getting elderly and going to need more care than ever, are we prepared to meet the coming demands? Even if I did have the most helpful large-scale fixes, I'm just not in the position to implement them. What I do have is some out-of-the-box ideas that could be implemented on a small scale that might grow over time. Ideas that focus on a basic question. What if we all began to make decisions about our health that could eliminate our own health problems before they happened? What if we all just took responsibility for our own health now instead of depending on health care to fix the problem later on? Got me to thinking. What if I could find just the right street in America? One street, a street that wanted to be healthier, a street that was open to change. What if I brought to the kids on this street experts who showed them how their bodies worked and what they could do to avoid diabetes before it hit them? What if I could have organic farmers send in the healthiest vegetables and bring in great chefs to this street to show these kids the healthiest way to cook them? What if I could bring in fitness gurus to get everyone on this one street exercising to avoid obesity? Mental health, 
what if I could bring in John McCaskill to show these kids how to use Navy SEAL breathing techniques when they were getting stressed? And if you could use those breathing techniques, check out the podcast I did with John last August on calfbusman.com. Think about this. What if teens could be shown how cartels laced up the drugs sent to America with fentanyl that killed the people their age who had no idea what they were ingesting? What if the young people could be made to understand that this was not fun? They were under attack. What if I could find doctors who'd go to this one street to administer care without having to finish the appointment in 15 minutes? What if the doctors could interact with patients the way they thought they would before they entered medical school? Would that not make them think and feel differently about burnout? What if nurses could show the young people on this street what a fulfilling and noble profession nursing is and could be for them? Could a single street in America be changed? And if so, would there be another street that would want a similar experience? And when a third street heard about the first and the second, wouldn't it be open to avoid problems before they happen? What if we went at the problems in healthcare not from the top down, but from the ground up? On this week's podcast, You'll hear me talking about this with Jason Harris, the CEO of an award-winning creative agency called Mechanism, M-E-K-A-N-I-S-M. I had Jason on Big Questions back in September of 2019, September 10th to be exact, when he was releasing his impactful book, The Soulful Art of Persuasion. Stands up now just as good as it did then. Trust me, Jason is a heavyweight. Not only has Mechanism repeatedly been named among Ad Age's best places to work, Jason's also founded the Creative Alliance, a group of 100 ad agencies that use their advertising powers for good by creating socially impactful campaigns. Jason heard how I was thinking, and as you'll see, he stepped up to help by starting to ask me questions where I wanted to go. So as the new year starts, you're going to hear the early form of my thoughts, and maybe you'll get a sense of why Jason's methods are studied in cases at Harvard Business School. I'm going to be needing a lot of help from a lot of people to pull off some of my ideas, but I couldn't get off to a better start than walking side by side with Jason Harris. So let's get straight to him. We're starting this podcast after we were talking for a few minutes, and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Jason's interviewing me here, and uh, I think this is really productive because I'm going to ask him how to create a campaign. He knows how to do it. And I guess when you're creating a campaign, you spend some time doing a deep dive into the person that you're creating the campaign for. Right behind you, anybody could see on this video, there's you and Joe Biden. You want to just show that photo? Sure. This is when he was vice president. Yeah, a little closer, a little closer. So everybody, yeah, there you go. 
on Air Force Two. And this was while you helped him with his presidential campaign. Yeah, we did. Uh, we did some, his identity for his campaign, but I was we had done a campaign when he was vice president. Uh, I think we talked about it last time, but it was fighting sexual assault on college campuses. We were going on from college to college where he was sort of launching it. So I got some time with him and he's just a great person. He really is. He's a real, real true to himself uh, original. And I just really connected with him. And I'm really glad that we were able to help him win the election and see what he's doing in office for, he's you know, what, a year in, 10 months in. When you're helping somebody do a campaign, how do you get started? Because you're coming in and I imagine you got to learn a lot of stuff before you come up with ideas. Yeah, the first thing, it's what you do for a living, for lack of a better word. It's the same thing when you're doing it for a president or a brand or a book or any, any story. It's know your audience is the fundamental first step. Really understand your audience, whether you're marketing a product to a group of people. I know we're going to talk maybe vaccines a little bit later, but you, you have to understand your audience, what they're trying to overcome, what their interests are, what their likes are. Really understand the barriers uh, to get them to achieve what you want them to achieve, whether it's win an election, buy your product, or listen to a podcast. It's really understanding the audience is the very first step before you come up with any ideas, any strategy. It's that insight and that research, and it's all it all starts with the audience. So That's step one. Do you, That's why I was asking you questions, even though uh, in this, you're interviewing me clearly, but I love learning more about Cal. Just like when you talk to any of your guests, you want to deep dive into their stories. It's the same thing. And it's when you can understand the audience, what makes them tick, where they come from, then you have a better shot of, of persuading them to achieve whatever the outcome is you're looking for. Well, I, I think what you were doing and the reason that I just started the recording uh, is great because people could see you at work in action. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So That's you were true. asking me like how how I was doing after the passing of my dad, and I was uh, I referenced a re recording we did with Matthew McConaughey where he was telling me after your dad dies, it's you're just not the same person, and I completely agree. And not only that, but I'm now reading and understanding that people often expect you to go back to being who you were before. Yeah. And that, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> you, you are forever changed. It's not like the old you was wiped out, but yeah. there's a new part of you that's going to make many different decisions. And a lot of that is the reason that I wanted to talk to you because if, if COVID hadn't happened, I don't think that I would have veered my podcast toward healthcare. I don't think that I would have actually stepped up and said, you know what, I'm going to re actually re try to reshape healthcare. I'm going to make it better for people. And I, I've always been somebody who just asks questions to people who shape things. So this is a huge shift for me to go from 
asking the questions to somebody who may one day be offering up answers. Yeah, you're you're going to shape things and not interrogate things. You know, I love that. I love that sort of switch. It's like a big transformation and a moment of growth out of, you know, something that was very emotional and, and hard. Um, so I think that's that's amazing. What one question? This is why I asked the question at the beginning. I'm sorry if I'm overstepping here, Cal. No, but, no, you, you know, go ahead and do it. So I can. I feel like I can. There's this. Uh, there's this thing where. I always ask that question, like, was your, do you feel like, cause you've had a lot of success and a lot of pivots in your, in your career. Do, do you get the sense that your father saw your accomplishments and was proud of you? And there's part of the answer that people have. Where you can't quite just say like, you couldn't quite, you couldn't quite go. Yes, of course he was. There's something that is like, where you can't quite get there. I don't know if that makes any sense. You know, I did an interview with Dan Gable, who was maybe the greatest wrestler of all time. I'm not talking professional wrestler. I'm talking about like on the mats. Real wrestling. In college, he was an Olympic champion in 1972. And he went on the mats with a, a knee that was bothering him. And in six matches, he did not surrender a single point. That's how dominating he was. Unreal. Then Unreal. he went on to, to coach at the University of Iowa, won NCAA championship after championship. And we were talking about this issue because he spent many years looking for ways to motivate people. And he was saying how he never knocked any of his wrestlers down. He always looked for ways to lift them up. Even if they were the number 30 in a roster of 30, he tried to make them feel like they were closing in on 29. It just it was a pattern that was just to push everybody up and up and up. And I said to him, you know, Dan, that's amazing because when I think back on my father, his way of motivating me was to say like, you'll never do that. No way. Can't do wow. it. And of course <laughs> it immediately like, hit the nerve and I'm saying, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course I would do it. And all along he was saying, Oh yeah, that's, that's what I was hoping for. <laughs> or he wouldn't say it, but you can kind of read it. And Dan said, well, isn't that beautiful? Because maybe only your father could have done that. If somebody else would have said the same thing to you, you might have just said, hey, you're, like, you're full of crap and walked away. But your father knew just where to tap into that nerve to motivate you to show him it could be done, that I could do it. So I only learned that very recently. And like at the end, the beautiful part of this, and it's the reason that I really recommend that children and grandchildren spend time with a very elderly parent and help them through the end of life. Because you say the things you always wanted to say, 
You hear the stories you always wanted to hear. And there's a real feeling of there's nothing left. Like I, we, under, we understand each other. And it, look, there are things that we didn't agree on till the end. But at the end, you know what it came down to? I don't think I ever told this to anybody. See, you're doing a great job as an interrogator. Learning the audience. <laughs> so my dad loved food. And when I mean loved food, he just ate cheesecakes and pastrami sandwiches and blends. Everything that he loved, he ate. And steaks, he would say, this is the way I'm living. And I'm not going to live without eating these foods. I'm not going to live laying in a bed. Uh, I want to be out enjoying myself. He played tennis almost every day till he was 87. And he ate exactly what he wanted to. But it wasn't like gourmet food. Yeah. Right? And one day, but the amazing thing about it was, even though it wasn't gourmet, he prepared it like it was gourmet. He, he, if he was going to make a split pea soup that came out of the can, he would tell you, or, <laughs> and, and into a microwave, like how many croutons to put at the bottom of the cup. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and, and so precise. Although, like, there's no, there's no way anybody would have seen him on the pages of Gourmet Magazine he was never a James Beard Award contestant uh, in any sense, but he was that precise about what he liked. And in one of the last days, he asked me to make him a cup of tea, and he liked it served with a wedge of lemon. And the size of the wedge was important to him. And he <laughs> like, showed me this, and it went into the microwave for a certain amount of time, and then the wedge got put in, and the tea bag got put in. And so, like, after he showed me this, and after a couple of times where I didn't get the wedge just right, one day I put the cup down in front of him, and he took a sip, and he said, that's perfect. <laughs> and I was like, the best compliment I ever got from my father for putting water in a teacup getting it in the microwave, taking it out, throwing in a wedge of lemon and tossing it in front of him. It but, was a perfect lemon wedge. It was a perfect lemon wedge. He was particular. But really, I think underneath it, what he was saying was, this moment is perfect. It was just the taste that I wanted. You were here to do it. We're together and... What could be better than that? Ah, God damn it, man. You got me emotional in like the first seven minutes. Well, that's what a great interviewer does. I mean, Jesus, I am like misting up. All right. Well, I, anyway, I love, uh, I think we, you know, I'm going to let you take over, of course. But I just love that what you said, you know, I'm going to hold that forever, which is, going through that end of life period, even if you don't say it, the exact words you wanted to say your entire life, 
you say it with a cup of tea. You know, you say it with the time spent together and shutting off other needs and interests, but really focusing on that time that you'll never get back that has been pent up for decades and decades. And, you know, I want that with, with my father when I, when I think, you know, my dad's uh, turning 80 something, but uh, that's what I want, you know, cause I've always had a similar relationship with my father of I'm going to prove it. So I really resonate with that. I'll show you. Yeah. We're not, we're not, uh, you know, holding hands through the lilies emotional, <laughs> you know, but, but we show it in, in other ways and there's still a lot left unsaid between us. Wow. And I want, I want that moment to say those things at some point, whether it's with, you know, split pea soup or a steak or whatever, however we're going to say it. I really, I need that. And I'm glad you have. Uh, Thank you so much for that. And uh, what did your dad do for a living? My dad was a professor of sociology. Um, his career. My mom was a English as a second language teacher. So they were both academics. I wasn't, uh, and they, you know, they're retired now. They live in Arlington, Virginia, and they're, you know, reading and walking. My dad's, uh, does some writing. We wrote a couple books and yeah, they're, they're, you know, living their best life right now. Was it difficult uh, for them to see you go off on a non-academic past into a very real world of campaigns and influencing people? I still don't think they have any idea what I do for a living. Really? <laughs> I mean, they know because I tell them and I show them stuff, but they don't really know what a CEO really does. You know, they're happy for me, but I, you know, I majored in economics and really to to kind of check that off the you know for my parents that I went to college did something that seemed smart in a business sense even though I hated economics and stats and finance but I really did it for them they were they were helping me pay for it so that's the least I could do I thought but then I knew I would go into a career in advertising the day I drove away from college and they would not have recommended that career path. <laughs> you know, advertising is, is not always looked at as the most moral of careers. Did you at an early stage understanding that it's not looked upon as the most moral of careers? They just think, you know, I'm going to bring dignity this i'm i'm gonna do this in a way that not many people do i did later on i didn't i didn't set out with that charter but when i uh started agency with some friends i had worked at a many many other places and i i it was more it was less like advertising more about culture we're going to create in the company that's going to be you know, collaborative and optimistic and uh, done a little bit differently, more empathetic than the sort of what you think of maybe if you if you think of shows like Mad Men or, you know, things that maybe glorify the industry. 
it's less of a of a you know make it less of a knife fight and ego driven and make it more collaborative was sort of our our attempt and we're still here 16 years later doing it so i think it's done pretty well what's the difference between manipulation and persuasion well i think persuasion that's a great question i think persuasion is helping people get to a place that is positive for them or is it, is something that's good for them it's them in, in front and center and and really letting them reveal it whereas manipulation i think is more trickery or uh gaslighting or finding a way to twist someone in, some, someone into something they don't really want to do i think persuasion is sort of showing them the light and and guiding them and then they they it's their choice ultimately i think manipulation is more coercing someone into an action well but persuasion's a dirty word you know it, it that's why when i think I, about it i i think about there's a there's a soulful or a, a positive way to go at a campaign or at a problem that doesn't have to be you know fear based or negative so i was trying to take that word back you know take that word the power of that of that word back cuz i think it's a, it's persuasions and i something we do all day long all of us correct me if i'm wrong but you're attached to the the peloton campaign yeah yeah and my agency does a lot of that work and i've been very curious about it cuz i listen to the ads and i know that the sales went through the roof during covid which it's it's understandable everybody's at home uh people want to feel like they're taking charge of their own life they're not held hostage in their own home but the ads to me were really intriguing because like the instructors would be speaking to peloton as if peloton was like the audience like come on peloton you got right. this it, and it was it was very interesting because you didn't i like I how you picked up on that that's really a subtle thing in the advertising the beauty of it is it's like you're listening and you don't know who's who's advertising to who here the 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 machine the instructor and the person were all together yeah they were they came together as one well i think what makes peloton so successful is it's really about it's about the community so you might be doing a workout alone at home but it's about the community not just on the on the machine or on the hardware but through the screen and then on social their their communities on social are so rich where they're supporting each other when someone joins the community whatever your your handle is or your name it's just a real supportive network so the membership is what makes peloton peloton not not that they make great machines you know great treadmill or bike or other products it's about the community that's sort of wrapped around the membership and that's what we try to do and 
that's what they set out to do as a company. It's what we try to reflect in the advertising. Well, I'll tell you something. Every time I heard one of those ads, and I didn't know that you were behind them. Like yeah, I would yeah. stop and listen and wonder what, what kind of thinking was at the bottom of this? Yeah, but so you kind of picked it out really quickly about talking to the community. It's about back to the first place we started. It's, it's the audience. And the oh, audience okay. wants to feel right. part of something. They're part of a membership. They're part of a community. It doesn't show the technology or, or you know, how the wheel design was made from some special steel or metal. It's about, it's about the, the audience feeling part of a community as a member. And that's, that's the insight, and that's what the advertising attempts to do. Okay, man, this is a real yeah. this is a real masterclass. I mean, I, I, this, I'm feeling good as we move forward here, because I'll I'll tell you a little about the whole experience that I went through during COVID, and literally, it's been death after death after death after death after death. Um, and uh, my dog died. Oh, <laughs> my dog died. When did your dog and, die? Uh, he died after. I, I I was in LA when I came up to see you in San Francisco. It was yeah, that two yeah. years ago, and uh, I've been having breakfast with Larry King uh, every day since 2008. And I did know I did know about that. Yeah. yeah, you have a little breakfast club. I'm sorry we didn't get you to that club. You would have been a good member of the community. I'd uh, love to. Would have loved to be in it. I talked to someone who went to one of those just yesterday uh danielle oh danielle robay yeah she like, gave some color to me about those breakfasts and how amazing they were yeah yeah I, you know it's funny i was talking to my wife this morning and she said you know i still don't believe larry has passed i believe if we go back to los angeles and we show up at Nate and Al's at 8.30, he's going to be at that table. And in my my head, I I get it. I, I think so, too. So what happened is it was very painful uh, and yet heartening at the same time. I saw uh, Larry's son, Chance, step up. Uh, Chance must have been about 20 years old at the time uh, to help take care of his dad and when COVID hit and then I realized, wow, my dad's about to turn 90. He's alone in North Carolina. And I realized I had to get back and be there for him. Are you in Chapel Hill now? I am. And so uh, the, the family moved from Los Angeles to North Carolina. We couldn't get my dog on a flight with the rest of the family. And so I took a road trip with my schnoodle, Apollo. He was about 17 years old and he, he loved road trips. <laughs> loved him. He would get up in that, on the, pass, the uh, passenger seat, riding shotgun and just like look out the window as the terrain passed. And it's a long story because he was uh, highly abused when he was younger. And maybe if we hadn't adopted him, if my son hadn't picked him out, uh, he might not have lived a long life. Uh, but because he did, 
and he overcame the trauma and just a great family member for 18, 17 years. In fact, downstairs we have like a music room. I'll somehow I'll get you the photo. In the music room is a piano, and you see Apollo sitting on the piano stool, like playing the keys as he's reading Chopin. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and loved to be photographed and just was, what a great name, Apollo. Yeah, one of the family. And so he and I took the trip across the country. And you could tell his back legs stopped working. And I was picking him up a lot of the time. But he loved Chick-fil-A. And we stopped at Chick-fil-A every day. <laughs> Not and, on Sundays. Uh, not on Sundays, you're right. Not on Sundays. But he was so happy getting across the, the country. And then when he got to North Carolina, where he was born, and we got to my dad's house, you, you could just tell uh, that he's not going to last much longer. Uh, but he, he made that road trip, which is what he loved to do. It's like a check off on his bucket list. And he passed away a few days later. Amazing. And, and so right from the get-go, uh, it was hard. And anyone who has a dog they really love, they'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you don't, then maybe you should go out and get a dog. <laughs> I, had a, I had a black lab that uh, passed away when he was 13. His name was Jazz. And... Uh, when I when he passed away, I couldn't get a dog for uh, at least I think it was probably two decades. Oh, something like man. that. Yeah, I'm it sorry. was that. Wow, it was that traumatic for me then because you know. he literally was with me, you know, since I was young. For uh, you know, when I was, I guess, in you know, college and beyond saw so much of my life and the, I couldn't imagine going through that again, you know, and that's a, that's a dog. Well, it's an amazing experience. And I, I'm, it's in some ways, uh, I'm glad that you can understand the experience. So when I say it, you, you get it. Although I'm sorry for the pain that you went through. Do you have another dog? Uh, my, my wife, same way. She can't, it's too painful. It was too painful to her. In fact, we got, when he passed, we took him to be buried and the vet made a paw print. And so we have this set and it's like set in clay. And that big photo I told you about of him playing on the piano, underneath it, we put his paw print like an autograph. That's awesome. <laughs> Do you want to know something? What? It, it took a lot of persuasion, not manipulation, persuasion, for me to convince my wife to put that photograph up. Wow. It pained her just to see the photograph and know he was no longer with us. Do you think Apollo knew on his, somewhere in his doggy brain that was going to be his last road trip? Oh, man, I'm going I'm to tell you. I, he... I don't know what he was thinking then. He it was he was filled with gratitude. 
I can I can tell you that he loved every minute of it. What what I found remarkable was the evening before he died. I didn't see this. My wife saw it. And when, after she saw it, she came to me and said, like, you never believe what I just saw. Because as I said, his back legs were going on him. And, you know, sometimes he would, his front legs would be dragging his back legs along. And she said, this is, it was unbelievable. Tonight, he started walking and it was like he was a king. He was on all fours and he lifted his head up high and he was walking around like he was the owner of the universe. <laughs> wow. And something in it, at the same time while she was glad to see it, it kind of spooked her in a way. Like what? And she saw this like under the moonlight. And the next morning, there was no sounds coming from where he slept. And she intuited, uh-oh, like something's wrong. And she said, could you please go down and look? And that, that's when I found that he'd passed. And he had what's called the rally. And the crazy thing is about this, Jason, my dad had the same thing. No way. I don't I, know I, about the rally. I've never experienced the rally. I, I, I didn't know it was a rally until we saw it with my dad. So about, I'd go back and look in my diary to get the exact timing, but I think it was, say, two days before he passed. He was sleeping on a recliner uh, and he, he didn't want me to help him get to bed. He just said, I'm like, I'm too tired to get to the bed. Just leave me here. And he didn't, he went down to sleep. He must've slept for like 14 hours. I started to get really nervous that he wasn't gonna wake up, uh, but he did. And then, and this is a very good thing for you to know uh, because I know you got Cole at home and I know you got Jet. Do you have other kids or is, th those two? This story is very important for them uh, because my daughter, Bridget, was home. And when my dad woke, you know, we got him cleaned up and he said, you know what, can you play some music? And my daughter's, uh, she's at NYU and she sang in choirs. She's very musical. And she went and pulled out Pavarotti singing Nessun Dorma. Pavarotti singing at his finest. And the opera is just, and the music is just so overwhelming. And my dad starts conducting. He's conducting Pavarotti and conducting this just incredibly beautiful music. And, and when, when people hear the music, they're going to be able to visualize this 90-year-old man in a recliner. He can't get up on his own anymore. 
but he's conducting Pavarotti. And I saw this and I said, oh man, like, this is great, man. Like, look at the, look at the life in him. You know, he's going to be around for a while. And we came to find out that that was the rally uh, because I think it was less than two days later, he passed away. And he, and he passed away at the point where he was no longer going to be able to walk on his own. He did not want to live a bedridden life. Uh, to him, it was all about quality of life. And to him, laying in bed all day, or even uh, having a machine hoist him out of bed and put him in a wheelchair was not quality of life. And he passed away before he had to live one bedridden day. And it was almost like a football game, because I see the Jets helmet is behind you, where you're playing against the clock. If he would have gone, I think, six more hours, he would have lived one complete day in his bed. Uh, and he beat it. He did not live a full day in his bed without being able to get That's out of it. That's amazing. Uh, so he had that rally just like Apollo did. And I tell this to you, like, be conscious of it. If you see that rally, you, you may know what's coming, but you also know that there's a sense of peace inside with it. My, my father looked supreme conducting Pavarotti. Yeah. And if there, there was nobody in my life who I did not want conducting my life, like, I, like my father, I, he said one thing, I went the other, and here he is conducting, and I'm thinking, man, that is absolutely beautiful. That is beautiful. And that is like the rally is the, first of all, I've never heard. Uh, it's probably a thing people know about. Never heard of it. Uh, it's almost the acceptance and appreciation of, of your life and, and what's, what's come before you and where you're going to next. And, and that's, that's the rally. That's the rally. I had never heard about this and only when like i knew what was coming because the last day i called up my son in los angeles and i said all right get on a red eye i just uh i don't know how long this is gonna last i want you i want you here and he like arrived at six in the morning and was able to be with my dad and at that point it's your holding hands and saying things and getting a squeeze back and so I knew what was going, but even the nurses were surprised. They were telling me, look, Cal, this, this could be like six more weeks. And to me, seeing him laying in the bed for six more weeks was, that thought was horrifying, especially since he wasn't really even talking at that point. And I wasn't arguing with the nurse, but I was explaining, you don't understand my dad. My dad was a manager for IBM for like 27 years. His job was to get things from point A to point B to point C as quickly as possible. If you were in a car with him and you were driving and you went two blocks 
off course, even if it was your own route and you thought it was the best, you were going to hear about it because he knew where he was going and he knew the quickest way to get there. And I'm saying in there, it's like, you, you got to understand my dad. When he sets off to get there, he gets there as qu quickly as possible. And the nurse is saying to me, Cal, look, I'm telling you, look at his legs. When he's ready to go, his heart is only going to concentrate on getting blood flow to his, his organs. It's not going to worry about his toes. It's worried about his liver and his uh, kidneys. And, and, and so what happens is you're going to see that there's very little blood flow down at the toes and the ankles and then the legs. And his legs are going to turn color. They can turn purple. Look at his legs now. They're perfectly fine. And I'm just saying, you don't understand my dad. You don't know my dad. <laughs> and, and you know what? He's listening. He can hear this. He's not saying anything, but I know he hears this. I'm sure he does. And I'm telling you in a very short time, and, and she, she basically was saying, look, right before he goes, his breathing is going to be different than it is now. She's giving me all the explanations, and I'm, I'm just saying, you don't understand my dad. And then all of a sudden, she looked up at me and said, oh, my God, he could be going. And then I looked straight forward. There was nurses on each side of him. I was at his toes looking straight at him. And I saw this majestic moment where I, I have no words for this moment. It's just where all the tension that you have, that you've ever had, just leaves your face. And it's so swift because after that, everything goes stiff. And then the nurse is pulling out her stethoscope and said, I, I, I think, I think it, it, I think this is it. This is it. And of course, I knew it <laughs> to just off of my instincts. Uh, but as you can tell, the whole thing made me understand life on like a much, much deeper level. And it also got me to thinking about healthcare, all of us in America. Yeah, how, that's why I want to see how that... Right. I mean, first of all, the story is incredible. And I just love the... I love the image of him conducting as a way of signifying that 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 his rally of conducting was just signifying that's that's my life, and he seemed very at peace with it. I mean, it's just that that the metaphor of the conducting at the end of one's life is just so rich. But yes, moving on. I wanted to see how that pushed you into going from a interrogator into uh, a doer in the space and a change agent because you're very motivated by this. And then, you know, we can 
I can tell you from my standpoint, what I do for, for a living, how you can tell stories about healthcare and, you know, kind of, it's an area that we've impossibly ignored for so long in this country. Oh my goodness. And we cannot, it's, it's almost like when we think about healthcare, we think about gun control. It's, it's gone on so long, we've accepted it. You know, we've accepted this is where we are with healthcare in this country. This is where we are with gun control in this country. And however, wherever you stand on guns, uh, clearly we have an issue with who can get them. And healthcare, you know, the, obviously the fact that the richest nation in the world can't take care of our own effectively is it's it's uh incongruous it doesn't make any sense you can't make heads or tails of it well i love what you just said about healthcare being impossibly ignored to me that is like the centerpiece of everything that i am doing because what i'm saying is i'm not going to ignore this i'm stepping up and here's what I'm going to tell you, because I watched this last year of my life to the point where Andy Slavitt, the guy who helped uh, President Obama uh, with the Affordable Care Act when it was having problems on the internet, Slavitt came in and did magic and, and got it up and running and, and helped make it successful. He was saying to me, Cal, you don't understand, but you are like an expert in elderly care right now. What you know about elderly care is more than like 98% of the country. And I realize that when I talk to people, let, let me, I'm, I'm just gonna push this out a few levels so you, so you understand where my mind is as I kept digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, one of the things I found out is that we are about to enter over the next 10 years, a period that has been labeled the silver tsunami, which means that we are transitioning from a country that is basically young to a country that is base that's older. Every seven seconds, somebody in America now turns 50. So we are going to need, because everybody's living older, that's not in dispute, we are going to need a great deal more of health care to support the elderly during this time. Yeah. All right. So that's, I don't see how anyone can possibly argue that. Now, at the same time, many of the people who are getting older are doctors. And in the next few years, I'm told by Jay Samet, who like the Pope hires to find out where the world's going to be five years from now. Jay said that in the next few years, roughly 110, 120,000 physicians are going to retire. And, and he said that before the COVID outbreak uh, really blossomed. And uh, there's just so much stress and tension 
on all the people in healthcare and the doctors have burnt out that there may be even more retiring going on wow. now to that. Now, at the same point, what we had during COVID, and you, here, think, you think of the population aging, but you don't think of the physicians aging along with it. That, that's that, right. You know, that's something you, you, you think of physicians as just, they're always going to be there. And again, yeah. Yeah. again, your words impossibly ignored. Yeah. Because there's no way to just start up like new medical schools and just make doctors overnight. This is not like, there's no microwave doctors. Of course, right. you, you can hire some from the Philippines or India, but there's going to be a tremendous shortage uh, of, of help. And then I'll tell you a story from, I don't mean to embarrass anybody, but there was a night when my dad, he before he got to the place where he passed, he fell and he needed to go into rehab. And he was at a rehab facility and his roommate fell in the middle of the night and couldn't get up. And my dad's in the other bed and he can't get up to help this guy. And so for about an hour and a half, the two screamed for help and nobody came. And nobody came because there were no nurses there to well, help. Was there to come. So many nurses have left. We may be up. I, look, I, I, I'm not the, the, the guy who knows all these numbers like this is my job. But what I read and hear is that we're going to have a shortage of like half a million nurses. So you got this population aging, going to need more care. You're, and and I know telemedicine is coming along and that's going to be great. But let me tell you something. When somebody falls at three in the morning, what are you going to do on a, on, with telemedicine? You need hands. You need bodies to help take care of these people. And so you're going to have a shortage of physicians who are terribly burnt out before COVID. A physician in America was committing suicide every day. That was before COVID. There was burnout before this. Nurses are leaving. And not only that, but when you get to this, the art of persuasion, the art of storytelling, uh, those nurses might have been nurses that would have bumped into young people and who asked, what do you do? I'm a nurse. Oh, do you like it? And maybe they would have motivated people to go into nursing. But now it's inverted. Well, I was a nurse. I got to get out of this. And look, these people are putting their lives up online and not knowing whether they're going to come home uh, with COVID to their kids. So you're going to have this silver tsunami where we're getting older and you're going to have less doctors and less nurses to care for them, okay? At the same point, we are $28 trillion in debt, and I'm talking to people like the billionaire David Rubenstein, who is basically telling me that it is growing so exponentially, and again, impossibly ignored. 
Yeah, just keep raising the ceiling, just, just, just keep, keep making more money and ignoring it. And at a, at a certain point where we're going to either have to tax people a lot more, which nobody wants, or take away. And there's only a couple of places to really take away. And one is Medicare, which supports all these older people as they're going through this process. So as a champion for healthcare, and you're seeing, you know, bills about to be passed for, I don't know the number now, 1.3 trillion, 2.5, I can't, I can't keep track. Does it infuriate you where that money goes? Because again, we're ignoring healthcare in that. And so does that infuriate you that that's where our tax dollars go to infrastructure, right? Which you know is important, but we're creating jobs. But we're we're so we're so youthful minded in this country. We don't think about the end of end of uh, life. We think about or taking care of people when they're sick. We think about you know the here and now. Does that infuriate you when you think about where the spending goes, or is it? I'm trying to land because, all right, we're, we're talking about persuasion, right? My second right. part of persuasion, know your audience to overcome the barrier. Once you do, you need a simple, consistent message of what you're trying to say. And for you, point number two, because you have your experience that 98% of the world doesn't, so you understand it better. What's the simple and consistent message you're trying to uh, get across and, ra- and, and rally for uh, to make change? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? All right, so I, I just want to, if you can imagine, I've just thrown a pebble in a pond and you've seen like the first ripple, silver tsunami. Yeah. You've seen the second ripple, the doctors are gonna be leaving. The third ripple, nurses, yeah. The, and now the fourth ripple, debt. And now we we have, there are other ripples to this because what's gonna happen is, you mentioned your dad is 80 years old. And you yeah. mentioned that, you know, Cal, I really would like to be there for him when the time comes. And it's going to put people who are like parents, people in the in the middle of their lives, who are taking like their time, their energy to take care of an elderly parent, it's gonna take an enormous amount out of them. Now here's, the, and it's just gonna bring incredible stress, but at what time? At a time when they may have a bunch of teenagers, all right? now. I'm told another statistic, I I can't guarantee these things, but that every 15 minutes, a child is born in this country with an opium addiction. So I want you to imagine, and not only that, but so many of the kids are gonna be digitally addicted and we're gonna have these parents in the middle that have to take care of teenagers with difficulties and with elderly parents with difficulties. And right now I have not gotten to the place of even 
being able to be infuriated by anything else. I, I am I am at this point where I am seeing like a whole breakdown across all these levels of society that needs to be addressed. And part of what I want to do is just make people aware of what's coming because they may be thinking, oh, and especially you've just gone through COVID. It's been terrible. We just want to get the train through the tunnel. And now maybe for a lot of people, we've got the vaccine. Hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Well, you know what? That light may be the headlight of a train heading 300 miles right at you. And so again, because I come from a place of asking questions and not from a place of supplying answers. This is why I'm reaching out to you for help because I am not accustomed to boiling this down to a simple message and getting it across to masses of people. How do I think? How do I begin to think? Let's work on it. I'd love to help. Oh, man. Well, that's just, that is Pavarotti to my ears. Oh, good. Because <laughs> uh, I think right now you're in the, you're in the insight and research phase. That's the phase you're in. So you don't even have the end goal in mind. You know, you're not sure what you want to change specifically yet. But there's, you just showed a bunch of ripples. And at some point, you're going to condense those ripples as you lean more into it and you're committed to this as the, the thing you can do to make the most impact because you can't, you can't unwind the whole spider web, right? It's just too complex. You can, you can attack one piece of it that you feel most passionate about to change, you know? And I think if you can change one of those you can start to have a huge impact, right? You can't you can't boil the ocean with it, right? It's too no, big. No, no, no. It's too that, complex. That, that's that's exactly it. And and I'm glad you're saying that because part of me has to understand what is even possible. I'll give you one more piece to this. Uh, and, and and when I look at the healthcare system, uh, if you looked at it as a football team. Uh, it, it basically only plays one way. It's designed to, when you're in deep, when you're in trouble, you go to the doctor. Uh, and the idea of the doctor is, we're not going to let the disease get into the end zone. We're going to stop that disease, whether it's yeah. early on or whether they have to do a goal line stand, or big surgery. Stop it at fourth and one. That's right. Nobody's getting into the end zone because the end zone is death, and we're going to stop it. But here's the thing: there's no real organized offense that's pushing the ball down the field, that's controlling the ball, and basically stopping disease from getting on the field. And I think ultimately that may be what I want to get behind because it's almost like creating a new team that isn't there 
and I'm, it's not going to mess with the physicians. It's not going to mess with nurses. It's not going to mess even with insurance. And it's, it's simply creating a team, like large numbers of people that understand all the things we're doing that are bringing forth diabetes and basically being there to help stop this. Now, I realize there's a lot of personal responsibility, uh, but I can almost see trying to create like a Peace Corps to stop the disease before the defense had to come on the field. I got you. Yeah. And look, I am speaking so far over my head. These are just (laughs) ideas. I'm just a guy who asks questions. And now I'm turning into somebody who has to be like a visionary. And then like my dad, the, the guy who, somebody who executes, which I got no experience in execution. And yeah, but it's a team. You have you have skills. You put a team together with different skills. It's like anything: running a company, doing a business, whatever. That's that's what you have to do. But you need to crack as the visionary. Your vision is to crack what you need, what you want to achieve. That's the thing to crack. What you want to achieve, and then, and it could be changing the mindset in the from what I'm hearing, this might not be it, but you want to change. You know, you're not necessarily trying to dismantle the ecosystem that you, that's going to be impossible to, to dismantle. You're trying to change the mindset of healthcare. That's That's what you're trying to change. That's exactly it. Because look, and, and maybe, maybe this is what you would call persuasion, what I would call storytelling if I could get across to people that it's in your best interest right now to have your two sons, Cole and Jet, just forge the best relationship they possibly could with your dad. Because I know, I know that down the road, when you're stepping up to take care of your dad, it's going to be a lot easier for you if they're there behind you. If one of them, I, if my dad asked me to play some music, I, I might have played Billy Joel. I wouldn't have played Ness and Norma by Pavarotti. And the grandchildren, they bring something to this that, you as a parent and the child, you just can't. In fact, there's an old saying, uh, why do uh, grandchildren and grandparents get along so well? They have a common enemy. They, <laughs> That's they, horrible. <laughs> it's horrible and it's beautiful. But the point is, it it will be helpful when you're at the end of that line and it will bring everybody together and, and not only that, but I'm sure having kids who would normally really just gone off to play video games, be spending that time with your dad is going to make them see the world differently. 
And I'm not saying video games are bad. It might be cool for your dad to play video games with him. All I'm saying is that we need to be thinking in a way to prepare us for what is coming. And maybe it's not enough. Maybe I need you to like say, Cal, drill deeper. What is, what is, when you put out that Peloton ad, how are you going to get people to see themselves, their community, and that product in one voice, in yeah. one inspiring voice? Come on, don't give up on me. <laughs> I know those ads work for a reason. And I got to learn to think that way. Are you going to come out with uh, the big answer by Cal Fusma? You know what? It's funny. It's a funny thing you say that because I wanted to do, uh, starting next year, big answers for healthcare. That's awesome. I love that. When we talked, when we talked way back when, the first time we, we did this, you were thinking about changing the name. And my, as an ad guy, your thing is so clear in a sea of a million podcasts that aren't clear or consistent that don't have something you can hold on to. I was like, don't do that. This you, everyone knows you for this and it's clear to catch on to. And so as we think about persuade, I have three beats for persuasion, right? I can sum this up really quickly is know your audience. What are the insights? What makes them tick? How are you going to crack it? What are, what are the barriers to healthcare if we're talking about healthcare? What are the issues we can fit, solve for, not solve for? What's the audience's mindset? That will lead you to a strategy. That strategy will lead you to your vision. Once you have that, you need to package your vision up in a simple, consistent way. Say it over and over and attack it with different people, different ways, in different places. And then the third is involving the audience you're trying to talk to. It's, it's going where people are and it's having them participate with you on your vision, completing your vision. That's the members spreading the story for Peloton. That's nurses, if they were paid well and there was a surplus passing on what a great job it is. So there's more nurses, you know, they're doing the opposite now. And so that is simple when you think about electing a president or selling a, a piece of hardware or technology or trying to change healthcare. It's those three things that you have to get straight. And once you do that, you could create a, an army and voices that are creating an, a wave of change. You're not going to do it on your, yourself, but you're, you can be the rock that throws that into the pond that starts it. You know, it's an interesting thing. I'm just gonna throw this idea out. As you can see, I'm in the, I, I don't know how visionaries work. I never had to be one before. Uh, if you just throw ideas up in the air and like look at into the eyes of people who are listening and gauge whether the eyebrows jump. I think when you know, you know, you're a gut, you're, you know how, you're a gut instinct guy. Right. And when you know, you know, and you know, right now you're formulating. Okay. So let's think of this. We know there's a $28 trillion deficit. And I started to think about this. What if we had 
a $28 trillion budget surplus. And I know you probably remember when Bill Clinton was president, he started paying off the debt really quickly. Uh, and it almost got to a point where people say, whoa, 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 we, we, we don't know how to make things work if we don't have debt. Uh, but what if there was a way to, not so much through the government, but through outside sources, to raise the money to help people get the most out of the health, to create this offense. And just say, I didn't need to rely on the government. Just say, I did this from the outside. And why wouldn't Peloton want to be part of that? Peloton should be like right at the center of it. Why wouldn't Under Armour want to be in the middle of it? They make clothes for people who are working out. Why wouldn't... Yeah. Everybody attached to fitness, good diet. See, here's the thing. They're all kind of unattached. There's no overall umbrella that just covers them all and gets them together. Uh, it's, it's just all a lot of different pieces. What if I could just get everybody to come together who wants the best possible health and future for this country, who doesn't want to allow it to be impossibly ignored anymore. There's an offensive healthcare that exists, and it's for the privileged. But, well, they're paying for it. And so they're paying for it because it's above and beyond any type of coverage. It's memberships into you know, specialists and preventative and doctors and doing executive, uh, you know, I think they call it like, what do they call it? Executive exams where they like look at your history and your whole body and they examine everything and tell you what your, you know, what might happen down the road. And it's, it's a 1% additional preventative healthcare system. And so this idea it would. It starts with a shift in complete mindset of how you think about healthcare, as not as fourth and one, but as starting from the twenty yard line, right? <laughs> that that's right, and that I think that's what. If I could do anything, I am not the guy who, as you as you pointed out, who's going to be in charge of execution. Uh, if Hopefully, this can inspire somebody who loves to execute and says, I, I want in on this. S other people who are visionaries and saying, I'm seeing exactly what you're seeing, and I didn't even realize there were that many ripples in the pond. But what we need, it, like the defense is fine. If you have a brain tumor in this country, there are many surgeons who can perform what I see as a miracle, what they see as day-to-day -day work. But we're, we're missing an organized offense starting on the 20 that's going to drive down the field and just push back diabetes, push back cancer. And it's, it's just not here. It is not in the United States of America, in spite of all our money and all of the great things we have, and I just think we'll be a much 
better country if we had that. Doesn't exist. And it, no, it does exist for the people that can afford it. Well, and I don't want to take anything away from them. What I'm saying is that, you know, there are kids who go to schools that had, man, this is always coming back to money the more I talk about it. And, and I was told about this by a doctor. They go to schools that had budget shortfalls. And so basically they were able to like rent out advertising space and put in machines that dispense soda like in the cafeteria to get more money. So, so basically they're bringing in money this way at the same time that they're also basically pushing these kids toward diabetes, obesity, and it's, there's no, there's no counter push. I'm just wondering, there's gotta be a way to get an offense on the field, like a really well-trained, honed, and, and for people in college to like, wanna take maybe a year or two out of their lives and be part of this and just be there for people to go into a program that could teach them things about an offense moving down the field to push back disease and just infuse the country with them. You know, what's interesting is we have what you're talking about in different pockets, completely disconnect, right? So to check this out, we have like 23andMe. I didn't even know about 23andMe. You know, what, you know, where you take your, I think that's what it's called, right? You take your DNA sample and they tell you you're predisposed to X, Y, and Z. Oh, okay. All right, got it. I'm glad you're educating me. And there's like, I think Ancestry.com came out with something similar. It's not connected to your files, your charts. <laughs> you know what I mean? The, the, right, the, right, 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 the, right. The connection of the healthcare system also is, you know, kind of appalling. Like the doctors don't even connect unless you're at Mount Sinai where all your doctors are or something like that. It's all disconnected too. There's no universal connection, but education, and then specialization based on the individual. That's part of, I mean, back to the football metaphor of like what team you're playing, you dissect the team and you figure out how to approach it. And not, it's not all size fits, you know, one size fits all. And so it's a mindset. It's the way we look at it that has to shift. And I think that's, anyways, I'd love to talk about it offline. Work on it. Uh, thank, thank you so much. You, you know, you just made me feel when you when you said the words "impossibly ignored." Yeah, it was. I can't explain what ran through me, but I think everybody who hears that, those two words, are going to say, "Yeah, we we have ignored it. We've ignored it in so many ways." And so, yeah, let's. Let's just talk and let's see where this goes. I, I, I'd love having you by my side. I love you being at the big table with me. 
even when there's no big table there. Anytime, the virtual table. The vir this See, is look, look, this the visionaries recruited a, a disciple. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, and I think I asked most of the questions. So, you know, this is a change. Well, thank you so much. Uh, let's stay in touch. Uh, of course, I'm going to point everybody back to your book uh, because you're, you're absolutely brilliant at what you do, which is why I'm so grateful uh, to be able to talk to you. And thank you, sir. When you go home uh, and look at your kids, just put in a good word for grandpa and uh, just any uh, extra link up. And, and grandma too. But any extra link up, I think it's going to be a big thing that I'm going to try to convey to people between this generation that's being born and the generation that's going to die to just connect them. It's just going to be so helpful for everybody. I love that. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. It's always, always great to be with you. Likewise. And, uh, we will be in touch shortly. Thank you so much. And say hello to your kids and your parents. Ditto. All right. Cheers. Cheers. And about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. Every word you hear is because of Tim. Well, you just got into my head as my ideas about healing ourselves and lifting healthcare started to flow during the last year. Now I go forward. I've spent my life talking to people who've built great things, but I've never really built anything myself. And I'm going to have to learn how to build the system. So, goes without saying that I'm going to need a lot of help, especially from people who know how to build. If that means you, please reach out to me directly through email at calbusman.com. I'm inspired by a moment I had in a suburb of Chicago called Naperville just before Christmas. I was in town to speak at an event called Refuel that was hosted by Dealer Inspire and sponsored by Cars.com. All the proceeds of the event went to Loaves and Fishes, a nonprofit in the area that got started in 1984 by feeding eight families in need. Now, it feeds almost 6,000 families year-round. And if you'd like to make a donation and learn more, go to loaves-fishes.org. Through their work, the people in that nonprofit are changing the health of those 6,000 families. Projects like these have proven to be very doable. I have to learn how to think like this. That's why my guest next week is Nito Cobain, the president of High Point University in North Carolina. What Nito has built with that campus is amazing. And the episode is full of wisdom for all. I hope it will be my first step toward building something great in my own way. Check out that episode next week. I'm so glad to have you on the journey. The best is yet to come. Cheers. <laughs>